Hello and welcome to Women's Magazine on mutinyradio.fm here in San Francisco. I'm Global Val, and uh, thanks for listening. It is October 9th, 2015, and I have some guests today, um, wonderful guests, of course. Um, and I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Diane Tober, an uh, anthropologist, researcher, uh, and turned filmmaker um, of the documentary, the upcoming documentary called The Perfect Donor, which really investigates the industry of human egg donation, the processes of of, of egg donation and some of the regulatory and ethical questions that we need to be asking in order to make sure that if this is an industry that's going to continue, it's going to be one that will uh, protect women's health um, and, and, uh, and societal health. So uh, Diane Tober, thank you so much for coming to be on Women's Magazine today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So tell us a about uh, The Perfect Donor, this documentary that you've put together. Um, What prompted you to uh, put this together? Well, I was contacted uh, several years ago, around the same time as AB 926 was going through uh, the state of California, um, which was a bill that was proposing to pay women for their eggs for research at the same rate as the fertility industry. And I was contacted by a former egg donor who had founded a group called We Are Egg Donors with a couple of other egg donors. And she came to me and said that there were a number of women in her group that had experienced some strange complications and some serious complications following egg donation. And they were all trying to find more information about it because nobody had really done the research to look at donor complications, donor experiences over time, and so on. And I was working for another organization at the time and working on the AB 926 project. And, and at the same time, with this uh, founder, co-founder of We Are Egg Donors, I started doing some preliminary research looking at egg donors' experiences. And what I was finding out from some of the women in that group was that many women had had some very, very serious complications, including uh, one woman who ended up with cancer at the age of 25 and has to have a hysterectomy. Um, it was a very rare form of cervical cancer, not at all related to HPV. Um, another woman ended up with endometriosis and was infertile. And of course, these are anecdotal cases, but I started wondering, well, how prevalent is this? And so I wanted to look into Uh, not only just the risks of women's experiences as egg donors, but also the whole range of experiences, why women decide to do it, um, how they feel about the process, how they think about the children born from their eggs, and so on. And in doing the research, I began to realize that this really needed to be a documentary film because their stories were so engaging and so um, important uh, because, you know, when you hear a young woman, 25, get cancer within two years of her last egg donation. That's something that is important to um, bring to the public attention. And so basically, I decided I really wanted women to have more information. And I figured that most college-age women are not necessarily going to be reading the academic articles. And so I decided to try to find a way to bring the research to film. And so when I started filming the documentary, um, The Perfect Donor, it was really taking that, my research skills as a medical anthropologist and bringing them to the visual world. And I'm doing that so that uh, people who need that information the most, like egg donors, for example, or people considering egg donation, will have access to more information. So I plan to distribute this widely across college campuses and also also engage with the fertility industry and agency recruiters and clinicians to say, okay, 
you have these practices, well, are there things that can be done to make this safer for the women who do decide to do it? Because I am pro-choice and I want to make sure that you know, women have all the information that they need before deciding to proceed on a process like this. Thank you. And having watched uh, the, the rough cut of The Perfect Donor already, um, it certainly seems that uh, a lot of the impetus for egg donation is this idea, this concept, this emotional connection of altruism. And we'll talk a little bit more about the ethics of, of that um, as we go on today. Um, but could you give our listeners kind of a, a, a brief overview of what actually happens procedurally when a woman decides to become an egg donor? What happens? What kind of uh, procedure does she go through? Okay, so first she goes through the screening process. So she might contact an agency or clinic and then say, I'm interested in being an egg donor. Or she might read an ad in the newspaper. Or she might even be contacted by an agency recruiter in her sorority because they do go out to college campuses to actively recruit donors. They tell her about the benefits of egg donation. She comes into the the agency or the clinic or, or fills out a form online and goes through a screening process, which includes psychological screening and sometimes genetic screening as well. If she's chosen, and not all women are chosen, only maybe about 10% or so are, if she's chosen, then she will self-administer injectable hormones for several weeks to help first shut down the ovaries and then cause the ovaries to produce far more eggs than she normally would in a single cycle. So where a, a woman would normally produce, say, one or two eggs that might mature in a single cycle, with egg donation and, the, and these hormones, they might produce anywhere from between 10 and I've heard as high as 80 eggs in a single cycle. So they're getting dramatically more eggs with the hormones. Once the eggs are ready to be retrieved, she'll take a trigger shot and a trigger shot is taken 48 hours before the surgery and it's usually either HCG or Lupron for the trigger shot. And um, HCG is associated with higher risk of something that's called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Lupron is thought to help reduce that risk, and so some doctors, if they see a donor is producing a large quantity of eggs, they might stimulate or they might trigger with Lupron instead of HCG. Then after that, she will go um, the next day or in, in a couple days, she will go to the retrieval surgery. And then there is a needle that goes through her vagina in an ultra, a vaginal guided ultrasound. <laughs> and then that will go up through the vaginal wall, pierce through it, and then suck out each of the follicles from one ovary and then go to the other ovary to suck all the follicles out of that one. So um, some donors go home and they have no complications really following the donation, but others do start swelling and bloating and, and getting very uncomfortable following it, and then they need follow-up with the doctor after that. And in the documentary, there you interview both uh, fertility doctors, medical, medical professionals, and also the um, donors themselves. And uh, according to one of the doctors, um, this ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, in which there are so many eggs in the ovary that they that they balloon up into this, these massive. I'll say unnatural sizes, yeah. um, and 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 one doctor said that that's actually very rare, and that it even went so far as to say it may even be predictable uh, to see who which donors might that might happen to, and then anecdotally, of course, I mean I guess we could call it all anecdotal at this point, um, but you can tell me um, one of the other one of the donors said that every other donor she's talked to has experienced. Uh, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. So do we have the statistics? We do not have the statistics yet because there hasn't been any real 
tracking of of the donors by the clinics or by any research out there. I'm I've been starting the research myself to try to gather the data on women's experiences with ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. So so far, um, about at least 35 to 40 percent of the women that I've interviewed has had at least moderate to ovarian hyper uh, moderate ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, requiring bed rest for several days, um, and then I have about 15 percent that have experienced severe ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which could be anywhere from bed rest for two weeks to hospitalization. Um, there's one woman that I interviewed that uh, her, she didn't know what she had and finally went to the emergency room and um, her lung had collapsed because the bloating was so severe in her body and at the ER they didn't know that she had OHSS. They didn't know to look for that in a 20-something-year-old woman presenting with bloating, discomfort, and difficulty breathing. So, um, so far, again, most of the donors that I've interviewed have all come from the same group, so there is the potential for bias in that sample. But I'm expanding my uh, pool of donors, so to speak, so that I can begin to collect information from a wider range of, of sources and get a clearer picture as to exactly how many women do experience OHSS. But it is far more common than um, what is being cited in the literature. And also, it is, for the most part, preventable um, or at least avoidable. If you know you have a donor that's producing a high quantity of eggs, you can you can pull back the amount of medication they're, re they're receiving. Or if you know a donor is um, has polycystic ovaries, uh, you might not want to use her as a donor. Or you might want to be make sure you trigger with Lupron rather than HCG, which would be a completely different medical medical protocol as far as the drugs are concerned. And as far as the support that that egg donors receive um, as they go through this process. Um, you know, many of the, the donors you interviewed felt that when they went into the process, they were felt very comfortable. The people in the clinics and the agencies were, um, were really uh, kind and, and, and made them feel it comfortable. But then later on, after they actually had the eggs extracted, they felt a little bit left all alone and and that's where they felt the most alone and like they didn't have the tools that they need um or the information that they that they should have had um in order to to deal with this intense procedure right. um that they've just gone through so um what what do you believe the some of those tools are some of that information is that's critical uh for women to to have if they were to decide to go through this donation or this process of donating their eggs? Well, they really need to be educated on what to look for for ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. There's some of the donors that I've spoken to that received conflicting reports from their agency recruiters and from the clinicians as to what they're supposed to eat, whether they should drink water or Gatorade, you know, protein or salt. You know, so And so some of the times a, a woman has eaten something that actually or not, not changed her diet to accommodate uh, reducing the risk for OHSS. Other women um, aren't told, um, don't exercise until you have your next menstrual cycle, and then end up, um, one woman had a, a her spinal, her, her, her back was injured because she bloated up so much and there was this pressure on her sciatic nerve and damaged her nerve. So, and then when they call, they aren't necessarily given, um, they're told, okay, well, you have your card. Go to the go to the ER. Well, they don't want to be treated by the ER. They want to be able to be treated by the doctor that 
knows what happened to them. Um, and so they do feel very isolated for the most part. Some women have had very positive experiences with their clinics and continue to do so, but a lot of the clinics and the agencies that I've, that um, women are talking about having gone to, they feel like once they were gone, they didn't care until it was time for the next cycle. And then they'd be like, oh, you know, we have another person waiting for you. Are you ready to start, you know? And so, oh, you know, one woman in the film puts it, she said, well, I feel like a cash cow, you know? And I think that, that I've heard that across, you know, quite regularly. Um, so this, this kind of feeling of, of being the, the cash cow, right? The, the kind of like a, a piece of meat, like, okay, well, uh, we're, thanks for that. All right. Well, we'll let you know when we're ready for you next, which might be as soon after as, as, as directly after their, their, their donation cycle. How, how close together are these cycles generally? I mean, again, we're, we're, and we know we're lacking some of this research, but what have you found? Yeah. Is it a lot of back to back, um, Donations? It varies widely. It varies widely. And I, and I want to make sure to say that there are some clinics that are very conservative. And, and I think you'll see in, in the film, um, there's one clinic where I went and they had a very conservative protocol. They were very concerned about the donor's health and they did everything they could to minimize the risks for their donors. But there's other clinics that, um, that donors have talked to, to me about having gone to or agencies where there's a lot of pressure to do these back-to-back -back cycles because the clinic or the agency has these waiting lists of, of parents that are you know, seeking out the popular donors. And these popular donors have a lot of pressure on them to you know, come through for yet another family and do it again. This family's waiting for you. The woman had cancer or they've been trying for 10 years and they haven't been able to conceive and, and they have a lot of really um, powerfully emotionally powerful stories that really connect with the women because they do want they are getting money for it but they do want to really help somebody and that's what they're doing it for and um yeah and let's talk for a moment and then we'll take a break in just a moment um and then come back and talk about more of the legal and business aspects of it but um for now it, kind of ethically speaking or or we're looking at this this industry which promotes for the for the donors, or kind of maybe paints it for the donors as as one of uh, altruism, giving of yourself, helping these other families, um, which is something that, uh, according to a lot of the donors, is very appealing. Right? Mm -hmm. They're doing it. They're trying to help people who mm -hmm. they understand to have gone through so many struggles themselves to try to have a family. Um, of course, these are a lot of very uh, younger women who themselves don't have families yet. Um, college students, as you said, people being recruited through colleges through sororities, um, but. How, how um, I guess, how common is it for the donors to be in direct contact with the uh, potential parents, the recipients of these eggs? Because I know uh, some of the women that you interviewed in the Perfect Donor movie uh, had a, a very close relationship that was established between the two and a lot of correspondence between the two. How common is that? It's not super common yet. Um, some donors really push for it and some intended parents push for it. Agencies and clinics do usually try to keep them separated, and it's only more recently that people are trying to, to get these more open or known donations um, through the clinics and agencies. I think it's more common here on the West Coast than it is on the East Coast, uh, or even in middle America where it's more conservative and there's a, a, a real concern with anonymity. And I do think that open donations are gonna become more frequent, especially because there's so many connections to adoption and people wanting to know 
their biological parent, or at least knowing where they came from. It doesn't mean that they're the mother or the father who raised them isn't their parent, but and isn't their mother or father. But there is this natural curiosity among a lot of donor-conceived children to find out who it was that provided their biological material. And one other thing I just wanted to mention quickly is about this thing about college campuses. And, and um, one, a lot of the women that I've spoken to have told me that, of course, they do this to pay for their schooling. And one thing that is really of concern to me in, in looking um, in, in the United States is that this, when you have a system that has such a dramatically rising cost of education, to me, there's something wrong with the system when a woman has to actually sell parts of her body in order to be able to pay to get an education. And that's something we don't see in other countries. In Spain, you don't get the student population as egg donors like you get here because their education costs basically nothing. So I think that's an important issue to raise that hopefully will start coming out. Well, yes, let's talk, definitely talk more about that after, after we take a, just a short musical break because, uh, yeah, obviously the cycle of, um, you know, young women in school pursuing their educations and often, you know, as, especially as a young woman, quite often not, uh, you know, fo- well, they're focusing on their education and not focusing on, you know, 10 years from, from you know, their, their senior year of college of uh, maybe what their life and family is going to be like. Um, but this kind of cycle of, uh, of education and debt mm-hmm. and incentive to make uh, large amounts of money in what seems like an easy or a short amount of time um, is is even such a, a much bigger um, social picture uh, mm-hmm. that I hope we can get into in just a couple minutes. Again, you're listening to Women's Magazine on MutinyRadio.fm. I'm Global Val here with uh, Dr. Diane Tober, medical anthropologist, talking about the recent documentary that she's made um, that is currently in post-production. It is called The Perfect Donor, uh, talking to women who have uh, decided to go through the process of donating their human eggs to fertility clinics and to to help parents uh people who cannot have children on their own we'll be back in just a couple minutes thanks for hanging in and listening
check. How's that? Good? Okay. Welcome back to Women's Magazine. I'm Global Val here, uh, MutinyRadio.fm in San Francisco. I'm talking with uh, Dr. Diane Tober, medical anthropologist who has just made the documentary called The Perfect Donor. And we're also going to, I'm also going to bring in um, another guest who we've got here uh, to represent or to shed some light on the legal side of egg donation, human egg donation to the fertility industry. And that is uh, Mona Lisa Wallace. Um, so uh, thank you both for joining me uh, for the second segment of today's show, uh, Women's Magazine. So um, Dr. Tober, uh, one of the agencies, the, the fertility agencies, ado- uh, the egg donors agencies, um, recruit, recruit, recruitment, um, members in, in the film that you, that you put together, um, said that when they speak to the women who are potential egg donors, they tell them to think of it. It's as meaning their egg, um, telling them it's just a cell. It's just a cell. It carries some DNA, um, but it's just a cell. Could you, uh, I mean, is that misleading? Well, that, that's a really interesting concept to unpack for me. For me, as a med- as an anthropologist, you know, in terms of looking at the social meanings surrounding our genetic material, and she even said, um, not only did she say it's just a cell, but she also said you're just lending your DNA. Well, you're not just lending it. You're it's like gone forever. You know, I mean, it's going to somebody else forever. So you're not going to take it back. But in any case, um, this whole concept of it's just a cell. And that's something that egg donors, I've heard repeated back to me in my interviews with women. And yet women that have been egg donors and later have children of their own, their perspective on their donations shifts quite a bit. So uh, there's one woman that has had children following her egg donations, and she said, you know, I used to think it was just a cell, like the agencies told me, but now that I have my own baby... Um, I don't think of it in the same way. And then you have, for example, um, there was another case of someone in the movie who um, their mother was completely distraught of the thought of her daughter becoming an egg donor because she was putting her grandchild out there. Now, obviously, it's not a child yet, and um, and it's a very um, it's a very complicated question. And I do think it is misleading for the agencies to be presenting it that way because that's basically detaching the woman from her own body and bodily products and and this sort of alienating her from herself in some way and her and the children produced from her eggs at the same time that distance is necessary in order to be able to go through the process because if you're seeing that as your potential child then you're not going to be sitting there thinking oh I'm going to you know give away or or sell my potential child you know and again i want to reiterate that i am pro-choice and so it's but these kinds of um uh discussions about is it a cell is it a child what is this thing that comes from our bodies i think are very complicated and i think that this is going to lead into we we want to talk about the the regulation of this industry which uh, at this point um seems to to not be as as tight as as we would like it to be um how is this this industry this fertility industry the um the egg donation industry how is it is it regulated at this point in the united states it really is not regulated in the united states unlike many other countries 
Um, in the United States, it, we have guidelines that are put forth by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, the ASRM. And those guidelines basically state that a woman shouldn't do more than six cycles and shouldn't be paid more than $10,000. Now, there was recently a legal case where um, a number of donors are suing the ASRM for what's called price fixing because they're saying that there should be, shouldn't be a cap on what a donor can pay, be paid for her eggs, which is a whole other complicated matter. But what I've been seeing is that in many, in most many cases, the many most of the donors or many of the donors that I've spoken to have gone far beyond the six cycles and have been encouraged to do so by the clinics, especially very popular donors. And of course, that that cap of ten thousand um, dollars, the highest I've heard a woman being paid for her eggs is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which is obviously substantial. And I've heard most. Uh, donors ranging in California above $10,000. Um, for example, repeat donors that are so-called proven donors that have already, somebody's already conceived using their eggs, their, their fee might jump from 7,500 on the first cycle to say 15,000 on the second cycle for a proven donor. So the, the guidelines that are there are there, but they're not being followed. So they're basically, there's not really much that they're doing other than, you know, and and from the the ASRM, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, um, you know, going back to the question of the the information that the women are given, the the donors are given, is there some sort of guidelines about the information that needs to be given uh, to a potential donor? Well, there are the basic informed consent forms. What happens is, you know, when they go through the form, informed consent form, it says, you know, you, you could be at risk for OHSS. We don't know if there's any impact of, of these hormones on egg donation cycles or there's a basic risk for surgeries or impact from the hormones on cancers down the road. You know, this is information we don't know. And, and they read all these things on the, on the basic consent form. But at the same time, the person who's going through the consent form with them, the coordinator will say, oh, you don't have to worry about that. that, that never happens. Well, it does happen. <laughs> and so there are these guidelines of what they're supposed to be given in the informed consent process. But at the same time, with the informed consent process, what they're being told is being dismissed as irrelevant simultaneously. So, and then, you know, women trust what they're told, especially young women that haven't been through something like this before. And are they given any sort of uh, legal representation when they're um, legal counseling as they are as they're going into these contracts? That also is as hit or miss. Some women have did not have any legal counseling as they were going through the process. Others did have legal counsel, but the legal counsel was paid for by the clinics or by the agencies or by the intended parents. So there's kind of a conflict of interest there because they don't have their own representation. I have heard at recent conferences of more agencies and more clinics leaning towards having an independent attorney for the donor, but most of the donors that I've spoken to that have raised that issue of wanting their own independent counsel have been told by the agency or clinic, well, if that's either highly irregular or if you do do that, you have to pay for it out of pocket.
So uh, obviously somebody who's going into egg donation isn't going to have the funding to be able to pay for their own legal representation. Right, especially if, they're, if, they're, if they have the incentive to do it because of the compensation that they'll receive, right. either as you were speaking before the break, um, because they have student loans to pay, or they're just trying to move their own lives forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to broaden this conversation in the legal direction, I want to bring in um, our uh, attorney, uh, Mona Lisa Wallace, Esquire here, who has a very interesting and um, kind of kind of a kind of a large issue to raise in terms of egg donation itself. Mona Lisa, thank you for joining us on Women's Magazine to talk about uh, this the topic of egg donation and the perfect donor movie that Dr. Tober has put together. Uh, thank you so much, both of you, for shining a light on this important important issue um, of egg trafficking. Um, I think that one of the um, um, interesting angles about that case you just recent you you mentioned this recent case of um, a class action suit of women saying, "Hey, there's price fixing going on here in this in this business." Well, one thing that about um, criminal activities and organized crime is they tend to do a lot of things that are somewhat shady, like for example, not disclosing things, just doing the right thing in criminal en- enterprises tends to be a, a pattern. And um, what I you know I'd like to argue today is that um, that the sale of eggs, of human eggs, is a crime according to the law. And, um, you know, as far as the, you know, the law, I think there are two very important things to point out. Um, One of them is that just because something is happening all around us with seeming impunity doesn't mean that one court decision can't put them out of business. So remember Napster? Where did that go? Overnight one court decision. And in the same way, we had penny stock sales. So our economy has seen this happen before. And and this is a $3 billion industry. And just because it's going on all around us doesn't make it legal. And um, actually, another recent court decision really does clarify that. And that was a a Ninth Circuit decision um, that um, came out in March of 2012. And that's um, Flynn v. Holder. Now, in that case, it was really interesting because in that case, this, that had to do with bone marrow donation, and it was being accused of being a crime. People wanted to be able to um, to sell bone marrow, and they were they were claiming that hey, you know, this is a, um, a, a, a going to help a lot of people out there. There are lots of really good reasons. In the same way, you hear a lot of really good reasons for um, egg eggs to be sold, human eggs to be sold. That people really need them. There just aren't enough to go around, and so if we can pay people, it would encourage more um, more out there. So in the same way, bone marrow was being um, um, restricted by this um, the, by having a, a law called uh, NODA, which is the National Organ Transplantation Act. Now that, that act since 1984 has been the law of the land and that basically bans it outlaws the commercialization of human organs and tissues. Um, so that law um, makes it a crime to sell human tissues. And in this case, Flynn v. Holder, what happened was um, they argued that uh, because bone marrow was being extracted not through surgical procedures and because bone marrow the, that was being now um, through a modern technology uh, medical change was being extracted instead with a blood transfusion style removal process instead of the surgical process. Now the interesting thing about that surgical process it's the exact same one they used to remove eggs with. Now the decision this 
this court said, yes, go ahead. Uh, um, NOTA excludes pl- blood and plasma. So go ahead. And it's not a crime to, to sell bone marrow that um, has been um, removed using this transfusion process. But be aware that it is illegal. It is absolutely a violation of NOTA to remove bone marrow using the surgical procedure with the anesthesia and the cannula, the removal process that is pretty much identical to the egg removal process. Um, So that is illegal. So the Ninth Circuit Court has said, at least for the nine states that are in that jurisdiction, that it is illegal to remove human tissue for sale for commercial purposes using that same tool. So I would argue, and I would think that any um, reasonable reading of the law would say that it is a crime to remove eggs for commercial purposes. And that would make the entire industry um, uh, have to face the other, I think, very important legal point, that, um, which is that um, I- ignorance of the law is not an excuse. So if you thought it was legal, doesn't make it legal and doesn't make a crime not a crime and it doesn't make a criminal not a criminal so the the economic repercussions of actually having our attorney general who is now uh, Loretta Lynch um, actually come out and and make a determination about or, or ask the court to make a determination about the legality of the sale of eggs for um, commercial purposes when um, NOTA clearly, clearly bans it. And um, I've read that, uh, that law, and there's nothing in it that exempts women's organs. So lacking that, the reading of the law says that it is absolutely illegal. That, that is a, 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 a very interesting, um, well, thank you for, for bringing that, that aspect to light, something that hasn't been challenged in courts yet, um, but, but definitely kind of showing that the, the egg donation industry may, in, in fact, sounds, according to that, to be walking on pretty shaky ground legally um, if someone were to take, the, take that issue to court. So uh, let's explain this a little bit. And we, ha- we have just about 10 more minutes um, to, to get into this. So we'll see how far we can get. Uh, we, we may have to do follow-ups on this. Yeah. But, you know, we, we, let's compare some of the legality um, issues in terms of different countries, because in some countries it is illegal uh, to donate your eggs um, or, and to be compensated for for giving your eggs for fertility purposes. Well, selling, selling. We could just your eggs. say selling, right? Like, what do they say? They don't use the master's language. <laughs> Getting money to give your eggs, selling your eggs. Okay. Um, so in many countries it's illegal mm-hmm. around the world, but here in the United States it is a big industry. Let's talk more about that industry um, and. And why is it illegal in other places? And and how does that how does that play out internationally? Yeah, I Dr. think Tober? I think one of the things about that's unique about the United States is the fact that the emphasis on 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 markets and capital in in our country that isn't quite the same as it is in other countries. And in, and I've been starting to do some international research. And and in in Spain they do have compensated egg donation or selling, but it's capped at a thousand euros and um, it's, they've got um, actual regulations that are enforceable in Spain. Um, in the UK, in Australia, South Africa, compensation is minimal, I think about equivalent of about $700, $800, but there's other restrictions like you have to have already had your children in some places and so on. And then in other places it's completely illegal, like Germany. And then what ends up happening is, is it, the countries where it's illegal 
they get donors or, or intended parents will go from there to other destinations where it is legal. So for example, you might have a, a donor from Romania and intended parents from Germany cycling over in Cyprus, cycling in Cyprus. And then that donor, I've heard in many cases where the donor is actually put on the plane right after her surgery so that if she has complications, the complications happen in Cyprus I mean, in, in Romania, not in Cyprus, and they don't have to, to, to take care of her. So I think when you start to look at the international dynamics um, of fertility travel and the flow of people from poorer countries to wealthier countries or from places where it's illegal to where it's legal and, and the flow of eggs from poorer women to wealthier women, it raises some serious um, ethical issues internationally. And, and, you know, it could be, I haven't really fully investigated this yet, but it could potentially be, rather than fertility travel, akin to another form of trafficking in some cases, especially countries where you have extreme levels of poverty like India. Right. And uh, in terms, I mean, if we're, if we're looking at this as a women's health issue, which it most certainly is, and, and obviously now we've broadened it out to be a, a legal issue that um, with these ramifications um, to, of towards women and women's health. But what about these social implications? I mean, I know in the film you interview um, some some folks who, uh, what they'll do is, I mean, these a lot of these women have given their, their eggs many different times. Yes. But, it, but in some cases, there's actually like a shared program where a woman can go through one cycle, produce a certain maybe like 20 eggs, and then three different couples share the cost. So they're all at the same time getting eggs from the same woman mm -hmm. and potentially becoming pregnant uh, and having these children yeah. all at the same time in out in the world. I mean, let's talk about that for the last few minutes of the show yeah. as we talk about the... Yeah, biological half-siblings that they may or may not ever get a chance to meet. And, and one of the concerns that I have about the shared programs is that you have one donor matched to three intended parents. So... On the more conservative clinics, you might have 10 to 20 eggs being taken and, and a one-to-one -one match. But what happens from what I've seen in the shared cycles is that not only are, do they um, share, say, f sell the eggs in three batches of five. So say, say you have an intended parent on a one-to-one -one cycle, they're paying $36,000 and they get all the eggs, say 15, 20 eggs. Well, in a shared cycle, you have one donor being paid 7,500. Then you have each set of intended parents paying $18,000 each. So that's already $18,000 more that the clinic is making on a shared cycle than on a one-to-one -one cycle. Then on top of that, if she has any extra eggs left over, say another 15 eggs, they're selling five, three more batches of five eggs for another $18,000 each. So the, the, the clinical profits increase substantially with the shared cycles and also with egg freezing and egg banking. So I think that's a major concern right there as far as possibly a vested interest in producing more right, eggs right. than what you would normally. Well, what you're seeing is the profiteering off of a bubble. And that bubble is the distance between... So even when we talk about compensation, actually most of the world agrees that selling human eggs is, is illegal. So most of EU, Cyprus and Spain. And so in the, when the compensation is just like bus fare, hotel stays, you know, it's not like enough to actually incentivize it. And so the reason why we want to take those incentives out is because of those harsh stories. Not just with the eggs, but 
with kidneys, everything in the black market. So we want to disincentivize the sale. And because of that, that distance between the just comp the fair compensation being limited here in the U.S. to what under ten thousand or wherever it might be, and how much money, how much market there is, that is that distance that is the bubble, and that's the bubble that I'm predicting is going to burst when the law is actually enforced. And just to, to wrap up a couple, a couple more minutes, um, so again, we're talking about the, the perfect donor documentary that uh, Diane Tober here has put together. Um, what are your hopes for that? Well, I hope to distribute it widely in uh, educational institutions, college campuses, uh, high schools, and so on. And I hope to use it to actually raise awareness to a larger public about um, you know what egg donors go through, and you know the, the positive and the negative aspects. I, I don't want to just be one-sided. It's important to me to raise all the issues, and I hope that this will lead to future con further conversations about the industry of egg donation in our country, and also raise awareness for young women so they have more information at their disposal before deciding to become an egg donor rather than um, you know finding out after the fact like oh god I didn't realize that you know I was going to end up with ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome or I didn't think about these things beforehand so um, and I do plan on doing another follow-up documentary looking at the international dynamics of egg donation after this one but uh, I just launched my Indiegogo campaign last night and so that was really exciting a lot of work but very exciting and so if people are interested in taking a look and contributing they can go there they can also check out my website at perfectdonormovie.com and if anybody out there is a woman that's considering uh, egg donation or has gone through egg donation they can reach me directly at my UCSF email address address, which is eggdonorresearch at ucsf.edu. So we've launched a research project that's been funded um, to, to get started on the preliminary research, too, so we can begin to gather more information that can be used to track long-term donor health. And, and, and that's another thing issue that I'd like to raise is long-term tracking of, of donor uh, health and experiences with the process so that they have more information. Well, thank you for making yourself a resource for that. And so people can find the Indiegogo link on the uh, perfectdonormovie.com. Ah, I haven't put it up there yet. Good uh, good point. Or what's um, the, how's the Indiegogo? How can people find it? Uh, let's see. I think if they go to Indiegogo and Films and look up the perfect donor, but I also can give you the link to put on your Mutiny Radio website. Certainly. I think you have it. Yeah. And yes. Then, um, I'll put it on and our Facebook page, too. And they can also tweet me at uh, Perfect Donor <laughs> Movie. I have a Twitter and a Facebook, and they can probably find it a number of ways. But, yes, it is on the Indiegogo campaign. And, yeah, if you have that. I do. And I'll, I'll put the link on, on uh, Facebook for Women's Magazine with Global Val um, after the show today. Thank you. Um, so thank you, Diane Tober, The Perfect Donor Movie. Um, and uh, thank you, Mona Lisa. Any final thoughts here from Mona Lisa? Um, well, we were talking about putting together a petition to ask Loretta Lynch to um, actually do something about the enforcement of NOTA as it applies to um, women's health and um, egg trafficking. Um, I suppose you could find that on my website or read my blog article on the subject. Um, just my name, MonaLisaWallace.com or GreenFeminist.com is how you can find me also online on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you both so much. And I just, as uh, Diane, you were saying t you want to do a follow-up documentary. I think we definitely need to do another follow-up show here on Women's Magazine to explore because there's so many issues to explore. You know, something we didn't even touch upon today is uh, the, the, the potential 
parent parent side of of this whole process um, and what what that means for people and and uh, you know how how we can kind of uh, find some find some sort of uh, balance in, in in these arguments in these in these um, to make sure that the best interests of everyone is being is being uh, considered. So again, thank you both so much for being. Uh, uh, such riveting guests today here on Women's Magazine. It's such a pleasure uh, to be here um, and uh, get get people's voices um, out into the world, streaming around the planet on the internet, uh, and supporting uh, women and supporting health of uh, individual and planetary health, and supporting the arts. Uh, so the perfect donor movie.com is definitely something to check out. There's a trailer that you can watch. Um, and then there we'll, we'll, we'll see that the final product soon. And if you want to support that, you can go to Indiegogo, uh, and, uh, look for the perfect donor movie. I'm global Val. And remember just when your aspirations seem outrageous, that inspiration is contagious. Peace. And thank you from mutinyradio.fm in San Francisco.
the Common Thread Collective is getting together, coming in together. People are showing up. We're doing so. Hang on in, hang on out. Has this will be going live soon. <laughs>